episode two of the Giants of the Faith podcast. This is the podcast where we look at individuals from the age of the church who have lived out their faith in a unique or interesting way. People who are giants in the history of Christendom, Hall of Famers, if you will. Today's subject for review is the Victorian era Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I've made some changes to the structure of the podcast in this episode. I'm going to try to use more of a narrative form going forward. Frankly, it's easier for me to write, and I think it will be easier for you to listen to. I hope that this episode is improved over episode one. Charles Spurgeon is one of the most influential preachers of the modern era of the church. He's widely known as the Prince of Preachers, and if you've spent any time at all in the Protestant church in the last 20 years, you've probably heard your pastor quote and reference Spurgeon. Spurgeon was nothing if not prolific. He authored multiple books, articles, sermons, hymns, and more, and is eminently quotable. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was born June 19, 1834, in Kelvin, England, as the first of 17 children to John and Eliza Spurgeon. Unfortunately, nine of his siblings died as infants. When he was just an infant himself, he moved to be with his grandparents in Stamburn, where his grandfather, James Spurgeon, was a local Puritan minister. He lived with his grandparents until about age six, when he returned home to his father and mother. There's not a lot said about why he went to live with his grandparents, but one can assume that it was for financial reasons. Spurgeon himself declared the impact that being a young boy in his grandfather's church had on him. He was surrounded by all of the stuff a Christian minister might be expected to have. Hymnals, sermon collections, books on theology, books of prayers, etc., His father, though not a full-time minister, was a part-time Puritan preacher. One could say his childhood was infused with the faith of the two great men in his life, his father and his grandfather. These men led young Charles by their own examples of dedication and godliness. It's often said that the books one reads as a child play a great part in shaping a person's way of thinking. The books that young Charles had access to certainly played a great role in the formation of Spurgeon's future faith. Two books in particular were profoundly influential on Spurgeon, Fox's Book of Martyrs and Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Fox inspired a young Spurgeon with its depictions of the lives and deaths of Christian heroes. It showed him how a Christian life could be lived and the lengths to which a man can go to live for Christ. Spurgeon loved Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, over the course of his life, he read through it over a hundred times. He also wrote his own commentary on the book, Pictures from Pilgrim's Progress, and in the very first paragraph of his commentary he says, Next to the Bible, the book I value most is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I believe I have read through it at least a hundred times. It's a volume of which I never seem to tire, and the secret of its freshness is that it is so largely compiled from the scriptures. It is a really biblical teaching put into the form of a simple yet very striking allegory. Despite being raised in the church, reading the Bible daily, praying constantly, and being the son and grandson of ministers of the faith, Charles struggled as a child and young teen. His views of salvation were focused on works that were apart from how he'd later come to understand that salvation comes from faith alone. In his own words, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean, in my own feeling. I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. At age 15, against this backdrop of despondency, 
Young Charles was on his way to church one winter's day. A heavy snowstorm kept him from making it to his destination, and he was forced to duck into the Artillery Street Primitive Methodist Chapel in Colchester. There he heard a sermon on Isaiah 45.22, which says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. He immediately was struck with the understanding that his faith in works was misplaced. Faith in Christ alone could save him. He later recalled, There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. He immersed himself in the scriptures and was shortly after immersed in the baptismal at St. Andrew's Baptist Church. Only a year later he began preaching at Water Beach Baptist Church in Cambridgeshire. He was a slim, pale wonderkind. His excellent memory and voracious appetite for reading and study contributed to the excellence and breadth of his sermons. He drew visitors from miles around. On December 18, 1853, he preached a sermon at the New Park Street Chapel in London. One biographer compared New Park Street Chapel to a modern inner-city church. It was in the middle of an industrial area and had seen membership drop from a high of about 1,200 to about 200 souls. Still, it was one of the oldest and most respected Baptist churches in London. It wasn't long before he was invited to stay on a six-month trial basis as pastor. He was 19 years old. Let that sink in. He was a teenager, called to be the pastor of an important church in London. This boy, with no university education, had risen to a pastorate in the largest and most important city in the United Kingdom. It's almost unimaginable it would scarcely be possible without the favor of Providence. Immediately, Spurgeon's audience began to grow. He was almost an overnight sensation in the big city. There was, of course, some jealousy from more established preachers and condescension from journalists, but the common man flocked to hear his sermons. They quickly outstripped the capacity of New Park Street, and Spurgeon was forced to rent out audience halls like Exeter Hall and Surrey Gardens Music Hall. By 1855, thousands were attending his sermons, and the folks at New Park Street realized they'd need new facilities to meet the demand. Let's just take a moment to recap this whirlwind timeline. 1850, 15-year-old Spurgeon has a salvation experience. 1851, 16-year-old Spurgeon becomes pastor at Water Beach Chapel. 1854, 19-year-old Spurgeon moves to London as the pastor of New Park Street Church. 1855, he holds his first service at Exeter Hall. Spurgeon wasn't to slow down. In 1855, he baptized Susanna Thompson, and in 1856, they were married. That same year, the couple welcomed twin sons, Charles and Thomas, both of whom would later become Baptist ministers. Charles and Susanna took to married life from the start. She worked as his personal secretary, and they took comfort from each other and in doing the Lord's work together. 1856 wasn't all smiles, unfortunately. The church took to renting Surrey Gardens Music Hall because the number of congregants was growing exponentially. On October 19, 1856, approximately 10,000 souls were crammed into Surrey Gardens, and another 10,000 stood outside. Imagine 20,000 people crammed into and around a facility not meant for half that many. They must have jostled for space and to be able to hear, packed like sardines in a tin, with the facility ready to burst at the seams. When someone in the crowd yelled, Fire! Bedlam broke out. There was a rush and a crush to escape the confines of the hall. In the end, 
seven people lost their lives. What began as a year full of optimism and full of promise ended with Spurgeon entering a season of depression and isolation. He considered abandoning the ministry altogether. He did not give up, however, and in 1857 founded his pastor's college. His idea was to train men who had a calling from God, men who had a desire to preach the gospel to the world that could benefit from some formalized training. He was not looking to equip only the elites, however, and he refused to set academic entrance requirements or to refuse entry due to an applicant's financial status. During the course of his lifetime, over 900 men were trained in the preaching and teaching of the gospel. The institution survives today as Spurgeon's College and is undoubtedly one of Spurgeon's greatest legacies. Spurgeon pressed on and in 1861 preached to the largest indoor crowd of his career. More than 23,000 people heard him speak at the Crystal Palace. We must remember that Spurgeon's career coincided with the Victorian era. There were no electronic microphones or speakers. There was no artificial amplification. It's amazing to think of all those people listening to a sermon amplified by nothing more than the breath from his lungs and the acoustics of a building. That same year, construction of a new church was completed. The facility could hold 5,600 folks and was built without incurring any debt. With the move to the new building, New Park Street Church became the Metropolitan Tabernacle, in line with Spurgeon's vision of a church for the entire metropolis. He would often ask regular attendees to skip a week so that newcomers could come in. In one 1879 service, all of the regular congregation got up and left so that those waiting outside could come in to hear. Spurgeon had a heart for his adopted city. In 1867, work began on an orphanage for boys, and later girls. Children were housed, fed, and educated. As Spurgeon himself said, We are a large church, and we must have a large heart for this city. Throughout this entire period, and even his entire ministry, Spurgeon continued to read and write books. He said to have read an average of six books a week. He wrote over a hundred books himself, and published his sermons individually and collectively. His words were read by people all over the world. The printed word meant probably as much or more to his ministry than any preacher since Martin Luther. By 1869, Spurgeon was hit with a severe gout and would struggle with this and other maladies for the remainder of his ministry and his life. One can get a true sense of his agonies from his own words. It is a great mercy to be able to change sides when lying in bed. Did you ever lie a week on one side? Did you ever try to turn and find yourself quite helpless? Did others lift you and by their kindness reveal to you the miserable fact that they must lift you back again at once into the old position? For bad as it was, it was preferable to any other. It is a great mercy to get one hour sleep at night. What a mercy have I felt to have only one knee tortured at a time. What a blessing to be able to put one foot on the ground again, if only for a minute. No ministry as large and lengthy as Spurgeon's could be without controversy, and Spurgeon is no exception. He became embroiled in political and theological brouhaha's in his time. On the political front, Spurgeon was a great supporter of William Gladstone. Gladstone was one of the most prominent politicians of his day, and was four-time Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Spurgeon supported Gladstone's Liberal Party, and encouraged his supporters to vote for and support Liberal candidates. That lasted until Gladstone came out in favor of home rule for Ireland, which Spurgeon associated with increased Roman Catholic influence 
due to the large Roman Catholic population in Ireland. 1887 brought about the beginning of the downgrade controversy, which was the most difficult fight of Spurgeon's life. It began with an article in The Sword and Trowel, Spurgeon's monthly magazine. Published anonymously, but written by Spurgeon's friend Robert Schindler, the article warned that some Baptist Union ministers were on the slippery slope, or downgrade, away from sound doctrine and the authority of Scripture. The following month, Spurgeon wrote, We are glad that the article upon the downgrade has excited notice. Our warfare is with men who are giving up the atoning sacrifice, denying the inspiration of Holy Scripture, and casting slurs upon justification by faith. The sword and trial continued to push the issue monthly, and a sort of civil war between Baptists broke out. On one side were Baptists who held to the traditional views of Scripture, and on the other, more liberal modernists that at the very least doubted scriptural infallibility, atonement, and hell. Spurgeon knew he could not and would not stop the spread of liberalism, but he was determined to make a stand for the traditional views of Christendom. One of the sticking points for the Baptist Union was that Spurgeon refused to name names. It's my opinion that that's a testament to his character, rather than a mark against his name. He said at the time, The time has come for Christians to stir. The house is being robbed. Its very walls are being digged down. But the good people who are in bed are too fond of the warmth and too much afraid of getting broken heads to go downstairs and meet the burglars. Inspiration and speculation cannot long abide in peace. Compromise there can be none. We cannot hold the inspiration of the word and yet reject it. We cannot believe in the atonement and deny it. We cannot talk of the doctrine of the fall and yet talk of the evolution of spiritual life from human nature. One way or another we must go. Decision is the virtue of the hour. Eventually Spurgeon resigned his membership in the Baptist Union, and the Baptist Union censured him in return. This marked a return to institutional independence that would remain in place for the remainder of his life. He preached his final sermon on June 7, 1891, and died seven months later on January 31, 1892. His body lies at West Norwood Cemetery in London, England. Spurgeon's own words put the point on his legacy when he said, A good character is the best tombstone. Those who loved you and were helped by you will remember you when forget-me-nots have withered. Carve your name on hearts, not on marble. Spurgeon's influence continues today as Christians continue to plumb the depths of his writings and sermons. He is a favorite reference material for pastors and it's not uncommon to see his words parroted on social media. He is truly a giant of the faith. Once again, I want to thank you for listening. I'll provide links to the online resources I used while preparing for this episode. And as always, feel free to drop a line to podcast at giantsofthefaith.com with any comments or corrections.